Is beauty merely subjective? Does pizza have metaphysical value? And could God be a toaster? These and other similarly important questions will be asked and maybe even sort of answered in this episode of Wondering Toward Wisdom, covering parts of Proposition 6 of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. This is the second to last episode that we're doing on the Tractatus. How do values relate and give shape to the facts we hold? Why do debates about God's existence seem almost fruitless? Kind of like the two positions are speaking different languages. These are more questions we'll be discussing. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a ministry of Tactical Faith. Check out tacticalfaith.com for more information on other ministries, podcasts, and events. And feel free to email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or tweet us at Toward Wisdom. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are going to at least begin the ending of this. We're going to see how far we get with the Tractatus. Uh, We're going to start somewhere around Proposition 6.4, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this is really the the climax of the book. This is this is where things start to get. This is where all the work that Wittgenstein has done so far really comes together and gets really really interesting. And I'll, Joel's kind of been hitting toward this. Um, of course, I, sh- I should I should limit my comments because I don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> but Joel's been kind of hinting toward this throughout the entire through the series of episodes. And but this is where we're actually going to come out and act and really talk about it. So uh, without further ado, we're going to start somewhere in the middle of of Proposition Six. And Joel, go ahead. Okay. So if you remember from last time, Proposition 6 talks about the the form of propositions. And, you know, I said it seems like it's almost a joke because he's then going through and talking about all these other things that are basically what propositions can't do. And, you know, so maybe it's not worth thinking about it like a joke, but sort of saying, here's the form of a proposition and here's what a proposition can actually do and come to find out. In the in, as as far as a philosophical proposition, it can't do very much, and we're going to see that even more clearly today. Um, in six four, Wittgenstein starts off this sub proposition and the discussion about around it with the proposition. He says all propositions are of equal value. What he's saying is. When it comes to value and propositions, they are of equal value, and that is of no value as far as expressing values. So, um, propositions just are not equipped to, philosophical propositions are not equipped to deal with value in the world, with something like beauty, with something like ethics, with something like goodness. That's just not what philosophical propositions do because philosophical propositions are true and false and we're concerned with how they relate, how the truth and falsity relate to each other. But when we talk about things like ethics and beauty, truth and falsity are kind of, are not very interesting to talk about. Um, You know, when, when, when someone says, uh, something like the the Mona Lisa is a beautiful artwork, and someone says, "Well, that's true." I mean, 
You want them to say, well, why is, why do you think it's true? You want you want more of an explanation. You want and and you know we think of beauty as something, um, more on a scale than than an either or kind of thing, and so it doesn't fit into these. Uh, into proposition, philosophical propositions, because again, it's not about truth or falsity and the relationship between the truth and falsity of the sta- of the statements. It's it's about something richer. the The limits, which we're going to see again. Um, can, so, can ahead. I ask you a quick question? Because yes. it seems like when people talk about beauty, ethics, and so on and so forth, value claims, the natural response, the response you generally get is beauty is subjective. So, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so they would say something like, uh, and I, I, maybe this isn't something you, were to, you want to get into and maybe it'll get developed further here. But when we say something like the Mona Lisa is beautiful, isn't the issue not that propositions can't hold value, but we're not talking about what is objective. We're talking about something that's subjective. Oh, goodness. So, beauty and subjectivity. That's such a, a loaded topic. Um well, I don't. The- I don't want us to get. I don't want us to get off track. I want to. I want to know because it sounds to me like, like, well, of course, I'm thinking ahead a little bit. That Wittgenstein is actually taking this a different direction than subjectivity, and perhaps we say it's subjective because we we don't understand what to do with non-proposition with value that is. I should let us go further, but we don't understand what to do with value that could be outside of philosophical propositions except to make it subjective it's like we have two categories the objective which can be stated clearly and the subjective and those are the only things that the only kind of statements that can exist only kind of thing that can be said maybe but the subjective is just another form of something reduced to objective where i say it is the case that joel thinks the mona lisa is beautiful that's the proposition that contains the value but the proposition has no value so, so let me read kind of how Wittgenstein himself sets this up. That 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 will give us a, a good lens, I think, to to uh, help us understand it. Right. So he says right after six point four. So this is his first development on six point four. He says the sense of the world must lie outside the world. In the world, everything is as it is and happens as it does happen. In it, there is no value, and if there were, it would be of no value. If there is a value which is of value, it must lie outside all happening and be so, and being so, for all happening and being so is accidental. What makes it non-accidental cannot lie in the world, for otherwise this would, again, be accidental. It must lie outside the world. 6.42. Hence, also, there can be no ethical propositions. Propositions cannot express anything higher. I'll come back to that. 6.421. It is clear that ethics cannot be expressed. Ethics are transcendental. Then, parenthetically, he says, ethics and aesthetics are one. So what he's doing is he's saying value cannot be in the world because it's kind of the world has kind of set up its boundaries, set up its limits, 
and you play in those limits. And there might be value, but the value isn't in the limits. It comes from outside the limits, and we kind of impose that as we see into it. I mean, you know, it, uh, let me let me uh, let me try try this example on for size and see if this works. Um, there's a board game I enjoy playing called Settlers of Catan, and in it. Um, you know, you're trying to get points and build roads and, and settlements and cities and prevent others from doing so. And um, we could say a good player is one who is willing to uh, maybe be a little deceptive, um, maybe, you know, not let, let their opponents know what's going on. Um, and it, it, within the defined goal of winning the game, that is what makes the the person good, but that doesn't really matter outside of the the game. It's not even necessary within the game that that's what makes them good. I mean, we can we can impose all kinds of values from outside the rules of the game to define how we, the values of what makes a good player inside the game. The rules themselves don't dictate that. Similarly, with our philosophical propositions, the rules of of the philosophical language game, to use borrow some language from the philosophical investigations, the rules of don't by themselves determine what where value lie. Rather, it's something outside of that that we impose on the rules that allow us to decide what value is, but we're, but the rules themselves don't tell us, don't tell us what is necessary for value. Rather, it's something outside the rules. And so that's why Wittgenstein says it's accidental because it's not necessary to, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case based on the rules. So the truth and falsity of statements and the relationship between the two of them or between the statements that does not have any, have to have any value. Any value that is with that is not necessary to the structure of philosophical propositions. Rather, it has to come from outside of the philosophical propositions for us to talk about them as having value. So could you say something like, and this is, this is another analogy that's maybe, uh, more analogous. <laughs> it's more more distant in terms of it's not even using language and value, but like you could say something like all atoms are of equal value or maybe all protons or whatever of equal value. But if you put, if you take atoms and put them together in a particular structure, a particular shape, you might say, then you get things that are qualitatively, I'm speaking of qualitatively distinct value. So because people would say there is value in the world, money is valuable, but that's not what we're really really talking about. Um, and, and even then, it, it's a socially constru constructed way that we've it's a, we've it's, it's not necessarily valuable. It's, it's valuable a, yeah. because we've it's accidentally valuable. Yes. Yeah, because we've given it. We we we've yeah by by accident. Like, but so if I, if, if I say all atoms are of equal value or all elementary particles are, are equal value, whatever we want to go down to, 
But when you put them in a different constru- in a particular construction, you get like you know a hairbrush or a piece of food or something. In which case, they're all of equal value. But if you put them in the right, if there's the right shape, it's the shape that gives them the value. And could you say but, something but, like? But even then, it would be an accidental value. Well, but I'm trying to think. Uh, this is purely analogous in that a, a slice of pizza is of more valuable is of more value than just a random mass of of Higgs bosons or whatever, right? Um, the uh, when they're put together into the shape of a pizza, then it's something quality of a qualitatively distinct level of. In this case, it's something like usefulness, but let's say value. Could this be in the same way that all propositions are of equal value in that they really don't have any value, but the values that exist are, the values come from the way the world is shaped. Is that, so just as atoms have equal value, but if you put them together in a particular way, you get a slice of pizza versus, you know, I don't know, random, just scattered dust. Um, so the the shape of the world, which gives shape to how the propositions relate, is where the value lies, not in the propositions themselves. So Wittgenstein doesn't want to allow value to be in the world. He wants to say it's outside the world. It's beyond the world. So even something like a hairbrush, you, you hand a hairbrush to someone from 4,000 years ago, they're going to look at you like, huh, what, what in the world is this? Because they, they don't, we, we, you know, they don't have that understanding of, of the hairbrush or, um, or even necessarily the value, you know, they, nor do they see the value of, of why you would want to, to brush or comb your hair. Um, it's something that, ha- that is coming from outside of. Well, so let me, let me, let me, because what I'm, tr- I'm trying to say, imagine the pizza is the world and the atoms of the pizza are the propositions. And so it is, I mean, it is analogous. Like, I'm not saying the pizza has value in, in I'm saying, let's say, because what, what I'm trying, I'm trying to get an image of how value is outside the world, but also sets the limits of the world, right? Uh, I, I know like, he jobs, we talks about the ha- the happy man and the sad man and how they live in different worlds, so to speak. So this is purely analogous, but insofar as pizza has a value that's higher than atoms, even though ultimately it's no value at all. Uh, and it's because pizza is, to use platonic language, is is atoms put into a form. And that form is pizza, and pizza is delicious, unless it's Hawaiian and then you're a psychopath. And so <laughs> uh, in the same way, the propositions of the world are like atoms, and the values that give shape to the world put them into place. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out if that analogy is... A decent analogy. I know it breaks down simply because pizza doesn't really have value, um, which is what so, I tell the places when I try to steal their pizza. But so, so for Wittgenstein, and I think it, be, it becomes more clear as we continue to move through these last uh, propositions of the book. Um, there's some real phenomenology going on in that there's a, a role in the lens you bring to the world and the values are kind of contained in the lens that you bring to the world. So that in the same way that if you're looking in on an, on an ant farm and you're wearing uh, 
pink colored sunglasses. Everything looks in the ant farm looks pink because of the lens that you're wearing as you look into the world. But the pinkness is not in the world itself. Rather, it's from the lens you see. In the same way, the value is going to be in the language that we've used throughout this, our, our, our podcast, uh, has been a valuative outlook. And so the, 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 the values are kind of ways that you see the world, or they're contained in the way you see the world, um, rather than in the world itself. And so, um, especially in this philosophical, uh, philosophical uh, language world. Um, so he's going, so what he's trying to say is that the propositions themselves don't express value, but when we bring our values and our understanding of value that lie outside the propositions to the propositions, we can find value in them that or we, we see value, but the value isn't in the propositions. Rather, it's in our evaluative outlook that we bring to the propositions. Does that make more sense? Yeah, I, I, but depending on how you say it, it sounds like what you're saying is we're trapped in subjectivity. But but what he's... But I'll let you... you yeah, you'll, yeah. But, you'll explain that more as we go. Because I'm, well, I'm, I'm trying to express, like, if I were a listener, I'd be like, oh, okay. So these guys who claim to be a Christian podcast are supporting this. Of course, we're talking about Nietzsche. Are supporting this idea that value is purely subjective. Not that we agree wholeheartedly with Wittgenstein. We but, might. But, 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 but it sounds like so value is subjective and it's not found in the world. What about the Ten Commandments? What about my daughter? Isn't my, da- my children, aren't they valuable? Well, but they're not propositions. A proposition cannot fully encapsulate your daughter. I would even question whether the te- whether propositions fully encapsulate what the Ten Commandments are trying to get at. And we'll and get to that. All right, so we'll get yeah. we'll, we'll get there. Um, okay. And and you know I I yeah if if, if this gets me uh, labeled a heretic I, I'm. People are listening. <laughs> Joel is a heretic. Let's just leave it at that and we'll move on. Now that now that's out of the way. So so he, he goes on to talk about uh, willing. So kind of um, the role of our will in this. And then he says, uh, of the will as the bearer of the ethical, we cannot speak. And the will as a phenomenon is only an, of interest to psychology if good or bad willing changes the world, it can only change the limits of the world, not the facts, not the things that can be expressed in language. In brief, the world must thereby become quite another. It must so to speak wax or wane as a whole. The world of the happy is quite another than that of the unhappy. This is where Travis, what Travis mentioned a few minutes ago that the good or bad willing doesn't change the facts of the world, but it changes the limits of the world. It changes our understanding of the world. Um, We can, we can think of it as kind of these propositions are what they are. 
they 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 say what they say they're true they're false they relate to each other in a certain way and that's what they do and how you will things doesn't change that what how you want things to be what you try to do to understand doesn't change the fact of things but it does seem to make a difference in the limits of the world and, and how you kind of experience the world. Um, and Wittgenstein, I think some people want to want to read that and be like, Wittgenstein's just trying to say that the facts are what matter. But I think he's saying the opposite. I think he's saying what the facts are, they matter, but that's secondary to kind of this willing that's going on but the but that philosophical propositions can't say anything about the will they can't do anything about the will they they philosophical propositions are just trying to look at kind of the are, are just trying to uh, in, in the poor example be the umpire just trying to say true and false relationship between these statements that's all that philosophical propositions are trying to do and Wittgenstein saying, yeah, that's okay, but there's a lot more going on than just whether it's true or false and how they relate to each other. And the logical positivists, I think, I think this, we're, we're starting to get to the point where they really missed the point that Wittgenstein was trying to get at. Or they think Wittgenstein at this point starts missing the, the truth of what he's actually saying. And so they just ignore I mean, I, I've, I've wondered if logical positivists bothered to read the last five pages of the Tractatus because of how badly they would have to interpret this or just throw it out to come to the conclusion they did about it. He, he goes on and says, as in death too, the world does not change, but ceases. Death is not an event of life. Death is not lived through. Uh, if by eternity is understood not endless temporal duration, but timelessness, then he lives eternally who lives in the present. Our life is endless in the way that our visual field is without limit. Again, he's employing a visual metaphor. Uh, you, you start paying attention and you start seeing, for lack of better word, you start seeing that he starts, he's talking a lot about seeing here, about about this this role of you you it's not enough to just have the facts as they are but you have to see them the right way you have to bring you have to have the right lens to see them the way that they're supposed to be seen and this isn't addressing the subjectivity question yet but i'll jump ahead and give the short answer and we can talk about this a little bit more that is it subjective? Is it subjective? Yes, in the sense that we have to train ourselves to see things the right way. That we that it's that, that you know the the magic eye pictures from that were really popular twenty years ago are are you know a good example. Like you know pe people look at them and the picture says what the picture says, but you have to figure out how to train your eyes so that you see it so that you see all that the picture actually entails 
if you d don't train your eyes to see it the right way, you miss out on what is objectively there. But your eyes aren't trained to see it. Similarly, with we can talk about art, we can talk about music. That there are sometimes there are things that are that parts of the beauty of these things are missed simply because we aren't trained to see them ourselves. So is it subjective? Yes, in the sense of we have to subjectively train ourselves to see what is objectively already there. So that, that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. And what Wittgenstein is saying is, with something like the magic eye, you can't, you can't change the, you can't just keep restating the objectivity of the picture itself. You can't just keep holding up the picture and saying, see, can't you see this? Can't you see it? Because it's something that you have to do on your end to see it the right way. It's not just the facts, it's being trained to see the facts in the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I want to, again, I want to compare it to other kinds of things where, so, uh, so I played guitar for years and my oldest daughter's starting to learn to play guitar and there's just, there's little things when, when I'm talking about it where I realize I I don't even have a hard time saying, even if I explain it to you, you can't do it. You have to, you have to be doing it. And mm -hmm. then you just sort of feel it. Like there's little things like semi-harmonic. If, if you're hitting a string, you kind of brush it with your thumb or whatever as you're bringing it off and it creates this, this harmonic, this semi-harmonic tone, which is, it's like when somebody's doing a solo and that's the note kind of goes screechy or whatever kind of rings a little bit, I guess that's a semi-harmonic. And I don't even know how I learned to do that. I think I kept accidentally doing it and then I realized, oh, that's what's happening. And so when I want it to sound a certain way, I do it and I don't even think about it. It just kind of happens. And so I wonder if that's, that's, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know if that really applies. It's like a technical skill versus a technical knowledge versus uh, just informational knowledge. But, but I think even, even that works. Like you can, I mean, because I, I, I mean, it'd be a stretch to call myself a guitar player, um, even in the past. I mean, I can strum some chords kind of thing. But anytime I would try and do har the harmonics, I've had plenty of people try and explain it to me. I just can't do it. I've tried so many things and I just can't do it. And I, I, part of it's my lack of coordination. Uh, I've got funky things that go on with my, uh, with my coordination sometimes, but, um, yeah, because I like I can see that people do that, and I can even comprehend how it's done. I I just can't do it. Um, or, or you know, first for some people, uh, when they're they're speaking Spanish and rolling their R's, some people just can't really do it. And uh, you know, they can you can try and do every everything to try and help them, but the best that it seems like you can do for some people is to teach them ways to kind of fake it and make it sound kind of close kind of thing. Um, yeah. So well, let me, let me ask ahead. you, so what does it mean? What does it mean to see the world correctly or to see things correctly? Like what, what do we measure? What does, I guess maybe what does Wittgenstein think we should measure this against? So, so correctly might not, might be, 
might might be too close to the truth falsity that of, of the the facts. Maybe a better way to say it is to see the world for all that it is. So it's it's not that people are seeing things incorrectly, but rather they're not seeing the fullness of what's there. Um, so let me let me ask you a quick, let me let me throw this into like by giving you kind of a concrete maybe sort of concrete example. So you see the people driving around uh, sometimes with a little sticker on the back of their vehicle that says life is good. And then you hear, I don't know if it's, is this a quote from Princess Bride? Life is suffering. Life is pain. Yeah, life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Which one is true? Life is good or life is pain? Those are propositions, right? And how, which one, which one is seeing the world correctly? Or are they both true? And it's just depending on, like, I guess, how would Wittgenstein evaluate that? And maybe that's asking kind of a, maybe I'm not even asking the right kind of question. I think Wittgenstein would say that's the wrong question because these are these are propositions that are trying to express values that are outside the world rather than something in the world. And he's going to talk about questions and that can't, the idea of a question that can't be answered in, in, in just a few propositions. But before we get to that one, I want to address a couple more things that he says in this 6.4, where he's talking about propositions are all of equal value. Keep, keep in mind, all of our discussion has been under this. He, he sees this as connecting to the idea that all propositions are of equal value. Um, and so he's, he's saying the value isn't in the propositions, it's outside the propositions. 6.432 says, how the world is, is completely indifferent for what is higher. God does not reveal himself in the world. And what, now, before anyone objects about and says, well, what about the incarnation? Or anything? Keep in mind, Wittgenstein's talking about these propositions. And the propositions can be in the world, but they're, they're always incomplete. They're, they, they, you know, they don't, can't express anything higher. Uh, what he says, you know, earlier, um, he says propositions cannot express anything higher. And so the propositions, which are without value, cannot express the fullness of the revelation of God. They're not expressing that. They might point us to that, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, but they, they themselves don't express uh, or do not reveal God. God doesn't reveal himself in propositions. He reveals himself in a person. And then 6.44, not how the world is, is the mystical, but that it is. What he's saying is, it's not that the world is mystical based on the how it is. He's like, the fact that there is a world is the mystical. Um, and by that, he, what he's saying is, before we even get to these propositions, the fact that we can have this world that we could express with proposition, that is the mystical. Like, we don't have to try and talk about the how being mystical, but rather the that is the mystical. Um, this is 
Wittgenstein is is really pushing back, pushing against the idea that these these propositions are really doing all that much. In reality, in the grand scheme of things, they're just kind of there. They can be interesting. It kind of set set you know they're within limits there, but you know, but they're they're not the wholeness themselves. Like we, if we get hung up on the propositions, we miss the that of the world. Um, kind of losing the the forest for the trees. Um, he says the feeling of the world as a limited whole is the mystical feeling. Again, Wittgenstein isn't saying these propositions are the whole of anything, really. The, as far as what's interesting in the world, um, he he clearly thinks that ethics and aesthetics are important. That value is incredibly important. Um, and when we're talking about philosophical propositions, about truth and falsity and the relation between them, they're not going to do much for us in and of themselves. So also, I mean, it's that it's that it's a whole, but it's also limited. It's those two things together that make yes. it mystical. Not yes. that it's a whole. If it were an infinite whole, that wouldn't be mystical in a way. And if it were just a limited, but just a part of something, that wouldn't be mystical. It's that we have the entire universe and yet we recognize it has limitations. That opens the, the door. Like this is a complete system. And there's something be and it has its limits, which means there's an there's a place in scare quotes, there's a or there's quotation marks, there's a place beyond it. And whatever's in the place beyond it is not a part of this whole. It's the structure of the whole. It's what gives shape to the whole. Something like that. And this is part of this is part of why it's hard to say that. There's a different, real difference between early Wittgenstein and later Wittgenstein, between the Tractatus and uh, philosophical investigations, because right there he's laid the groundwork for a language game that he talks about in the investigations. That there is a a whole that it 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 is a complete system, but it has limits. And um, in in the investigations, he's going to try and talk about how do different how do how do you talk across different worlds? How do different language games communicate with each other when they're these two limited holes? How do they find ways to meaningfully communicate with each other? I think it actually is part of what's what's going on with so much of the outrage culture is we're all playing different language games and we get mad that other people aren't playing our language game. And so we take what they say in our language game and we have lost the desire and the, the, uh, the goal of trying to communicate with people who see the world differently, who think of the world differently, who have a different understanding of the, of, of, of who have a different limited hole than we do. I'm going to address just a couple more things. And I think we should wrap up this episode and we'll do one more and we will definitely finish it next time because we will be have we less. Promise. 
we have less than a page after I wrap this up today. 6.5. I just want to introduce 6.5. He says, for an answer which cannot be expressed, the question two cannot be expressed. The riddle does not exist. If a question can be put at all, then it can also be answered. If we have the ability, what Wittgenstein's saying is there's no such thing as a question without an answer or an answer without a question. Now, this might make you think about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they find that the answer to the the biggest or the, the question of the universe is 42. So they build a big machine to figure out what the question is, to which that is the answer. And uh, hijinks happen. Um, hijinks and destruction happen. Um, but the, what Wittgenstein's saying is, if we can ask the question meaningfully, we can answer it. If And if there's an answer... Well, there's a question that can be expressed, and there's a question we just got to figure out how to express as well. Um, and this doesn't mean that there aren't paradoxes, there's not mystery, but again, within that limited whole of a that world of, of a language kind of thing, when we're talking about Christian theology that is has that world has different limits than philosophical propositions that Wittgenstein is addressing in the Tractatus. And when we make appeals to mystery, it's a meaningful appeal because the we're 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 saying we don't understand it, but God does. And so th- there there's a there's it's it's to say that. It's when we appeal to mystery, we're, we are answering the question by saying God answers that question, even if we don't. Our, our language is expressing that God can answer the question, even if we can't. Um, the problem is when we try to ask a question that does fit within a theological framework in a non-theological framework, well, then it starts to become nonsense and we're not actually asking a question. So the, there isn't actually an answer because the question does is a nonsense question that it cannot actually be expressed within that limited whole, within that world. It seems like there's a, there's a direct application to apologetics debates in what you just said. But I'll leave yes. it at that. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I mean, I, I think... It, I'll, I'll lay it out. I mean, I, I think we have to be be cognizant of how we're talking and what what area we're asking our questions in. If we ask them, if we're trying to answer questions that apply to the wrong field, then we're going to end up sounding ridiculous trying to answer them in the wrong field. Um, you know, if 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 you ask me. You know, what's 536 times 203? And I start waxing poetically about font types of the numbers and about the spacing, you know, and I, I'm clearly talking about 
how it looks and, and how it's presented, you're going to be like, you're missing the point. And I would be missing the point because I'm, I'm trying to answer a question in, in the wrong sense. Um, and I think if we really want to be able to have productive conversations, we have to, to be able to recognize where the questions fit, like what, what language worlds the questions fit within and try to answer and answer them within that world. Yeah. This, this is why I think I've had questions that, that atheists and so forth have asked me before. And when I give a response, it's almost like I gave a response to their question that, that is a reasonable response, thoughtful, educated, blah, 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 blah. But it, it never answered the question that they were asking. Like, it's clear that it was unsatisfying to them. Like, and that, and so they come up with more and more questions. And I had, I had a student uh, in one of my classes one time call in <clears throat> to the atheist experience show. And if you ever watch videos or listen to people calling into the atheist experience, I, it, it'll make you feel like anyone who's a believer is an idiot. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, he called in and made some sort of argument. And I forget exactly what it was. Uh, but something about God being the origin or whatever, uh, the origin of all things. And one of the questions they asked him was, well, why couldn't, why does it have to be the God you're talking about? Why couldn't it be a toaster? And I mean, there's a really obvious response in my mind to that question. It's such an easy question to answer. And he had a hard time with it, which I, 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 I let him know that I was very disappointed uh, I didn't assign him to call into the show, by the way. Uh, I wouldn't do that. But it felt like for them to ask, couldn't the origin of the universe, of the world itself, be a toaster? That question doesn't even, it almost doesn't have any, it's playing with a field where it doesn't belong. Like, it's, mm -hmm. like I feel like Wittgenstein is kind of containing that. Like, toaster doesn't even mean anything in the context in which you're talking about stuff. Well, the, the, the issue, though, is for an atheist, the idea of an immaterial personal being creating the universe has as much sense as a toaster creating the universe. Well, they, they put it all within the world of proposition of fact. So God must first submit to being in the world, and right. then you can prove the existence of God. And if Wittgenstein is right, now this gets a little bit weird, but if Wittgenstein is right, I'll, and I'll, I'll say why I think this is weird in a second. But if Wittgenstein is right, then that is once you've submitted God to being a part of the world, the philosophical world of propositions, then then God, I guess, can submit to different kinds of research and fact and so on and so forth. The problem is, does that mean, so if we're going to follow Wittgenstein the whole way, and maybe we can because you're talking about this, if it can be stated as a question, then we can have an answer. Does that mean to say God exists as a proposition is itself nonsense? That's what the logical positivists would say, right? They said that's, uh, that phrase, like God is good or whatever, is actually a meaningless phrase because there's no way to verify it within the world. Maybe we should leave that for the next episode, but if you want to answer it now. The, my, my short answer since we're we're running up against uh, a time uh, time crunch, um, my short answer is 
if you think the the word God can fully encapsulate and you can fully propositionally define that word such that you've fully encapsulated God uh, exists, then I would say that is a nonsensical statement. Well, it's it's the 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 idea of God cannot be fully encapsulated in a proposition. And so um, to say God exists is not something that can be a philosophical proposition. Okay. Um, we'll have to expand on that a little bit because that's kind of a critique of theology too. Because we always, we talk about how it's dangerous to anthropomorphize God. And if we're taking this, then anthropom- anthropomorphism isn't the real, isn't the major problem. Uh, uh, what would you call? It? Is there a is there an ism for putting things in the world that don't belong there? The uh, intra cos cosmoism or something <laughs> is the is the real problem because the way the way it's not that God doesn't exist that also is an improper statement, but that God is, I mean, some people say God God exists more. But that doesn't even make any sense. Like, I mean, that doesn't make any sense in our language. Like, what does it mean? Things either exist or they don't, right? But there used to be this idea of hierarchy of being and so on and so forth. And I'm interested here in seeing what Wittgenstein has to would would say to this. Um, but also, again, how Christians, how should we, what and how should we appropriate Wittgenstein? What of Wittgenstein and how? Should we appropriate and how do we do it? How does it kind of fit in with our theology? And the idea that we're not just anthropomorphizing God, we're actually fundamentally looking at God sort of the wrong way, even if we have a lot of the propositions right, is intriguing to me because I think there's something to that. Well, I, I mean, I I would say we do it all the time when we, when we recognize that you know, those we dearly love cannot be fully expressed in propositions but rather the propositions kind of point to the person rather than our revelation of the person um yes yes we already recognize this with people we're close to yes it's really true with everyone but we recognize it with the people we're close to why would we think it's any different about god exactly okay well on that note i think we should wrap up and uh we joel promises we'll finish next time Unless Travis takes me down too many bad rabbit trails, we will finish bad. next time. Ouch. Well, let me rephrase that. We will finish the text next time. We might not finish our discussion, but we'll finish the right. text next time. Right. Uh, this has been great. Uh, this has been great so far. I've, I've enjoyed this because my, my understanding of Wittgenstein has always been fairly limited, and I knew there was something really important here. So uh, off to pay Joel my tuition afterwards. But anyway, Joel, thank you. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Hopefully we'll talk at you next time. But for now, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.